Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi everybody, my name's John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and a film critic, and uh, today I'm going to be talking to Mark Searby. He is a journalist and writer, and he has written a wonderful book on Al Pacino, Al Pacino, The Movies Behind the Man, which is a film-by-film survey uh, of the prolific career of Al Pacino, one of the finest screen actors ever. Uh, it's a long conversation, so I'm going to keep this introduction quite short. Uh, just to remind you, if you do enjoy the conversation, please spread the word as much as you can, like, subscribe, etc. And if you wish to join me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, you can do at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Well, I'm not originally from Essex anyway. Right. I'm originally from Nottingham and moved down to Essex uh, just uh, just after 2000. Uh, a woman, as to be expected, of mm-hmm. course, you know that, as you know, listen, you're from England and you're now in Italy. So yeah. you know how that works. Um, I'd always been a fan of Pacino. I think that was the thing is that, you know, I had seen several films. I was obsessed with Scent of a Woman growing up. It was right. the one film I would rent from the local video shop 
constantly. And I, I don't think maybe it was to do with Pacino. I don't know. I think it was more to do with the fact that there was this man who was standing up for school kids and shouting at teachers that I kind of liked about it. You know, I, I didn't really understand the nuances of the character and the story and the journey that, you know, Chris O'Donnell's character goes on. Or, I, I didn't understand any of that. So I think it was more, as I said, that just the shouting in it, which obviously we'll come to when we're talking about Pacino shouting. Your sort of entry drug for Pacino was was kind of quite that quite late period. You know, there's a, there's a sense of a woman. It's interesting because it really does demark as well uh, one of the one of the many periods of his career you look at the periods of his career in the 90s is shouty Pacino let's be honest here mm -hmm. you know there are some films that where he's not shouting at all in the 90s but nobody saw them because everybody wants him to be shouting and screaming at people and whatever else so yeah I kind of came to it in the 90s the Pacino catalogue but only the new stuff as I said Sense of a Woman Dick Tracy as well mm. in there Any Given Sunday The Insider things like that and it was only later on when I was late 20s, early 30s, something like that, that I started to go back and, and see other films of his, ones that I hadn't seen, you know, like, obviously I'd seen The Godfather on the TV, but never really, really loved it, I guess. I, I just sort of appreciated it, never really loved it. Other films, Sea of Love, Dog Day Afternoon, obviously Bobby Diffield, all of these, I went back. And I think that's where my appreciation of Pacino's work started. And then it just kind of escalated from there where I, I just became obsessed with having to own every single film he had ever done. And obviously this was in the VHS, slowly turning into DVD era. So there were films that he had made that had never got a UK release. Insomnia, I remember Insomnia. I had to buy that from the US because it had not been released here in the UK. It got a release much later on. And this is a film that's Al Pacino versus Robin Williams. And obviously now directed by Christopher Nolan as well. But it didn't get a, a big, huge UK release. And I had to import it from the US. And it cost me something like £50. You know, I mean, you say that now and people are like, £50, that's ridiculous. But that's the price you used to pay when you were importing VHSs here in the UK. And I think it just... It went from there and then my career sort of took a weird turn into doing film criticism. Mm. And I was writing for a sadly now defunct magazine called New Empress. My editor, Helen Cox, who's from the north of England, we used to go out drinking in London. And you know what happens when you get drunk and somebody gives you an idea. And you think that's the greatest idea in the world, isn't it? You know, at 2 a.m. in Soho or something. And she had said, listen, you should write something about Pacino. More than just an article, you should write a book. And I said, but there's already a great book out there, which is the official biography by Lawrence Grobel. I said, and Andrew Yule did a, a kind of interesting book um, called Life on the Wire. I said, but I, I, what would I write? You know, I, I don't know. And she said, well, you should just write it. You should just write it. And then I couldn't get the idea out of my head of thinking, well, maybe I should do it. I, I don't know what's stopping me. You know, no, nothing is stopping me at all. So I thought, well, I don't want to do a, a, a standard biography because that's already been done. It seems kind of pointless to do a retread of that. So I spent months trying to think of the hook of what to write for the book basically and then all of a sudden it, two things hit me very quickly one of them was we'll do a real in-depth dive into each individual film you know how you see these huge lookbacks that people like variety do or hollywood reporter or empire do they're mm. like you know five or six pages 
and they speak to people and it's really in depth. This is where they filmed and this is how it got made and all of that. I thought, okay, I, I could do that. That's not a problem, I don't think. But I still needed something else. And that's when it kind of hit me that maybe I should interview one person from every single film because then you get a greater understanding of what it's like to work with Pacino. Sort of like an oral history from other, other angles. Yes, absolutely. Because you have these films which have got such a wide variety of people in them not just actors you know there's other people and that and that what happened with my book is that I ended up interviewing um directors producers actors magicians you know like just random people and I just thought well this is kind of interesting maybe I should do this and that's kind of where it started and it just spiraled and I just got my head down and just started writing and writing and writing and I kind of enjoyed it when you were writing were you doing it like um sort of chronologically working through the films or or were you sort of like well these films are, are very available and I've got them in my house so I'm going to do these first and then go back and, and fill in the gaps well the good thing was I had every single film in my house there were some films that never got released here in the UK only got released in the US in a box set which I'd already bought anyway you know it was uh, Al Pacino and Actors Vision only available in the US very limited quantity I'd already bought it anyway you know being a huge Pacino fan so the films that were in that box set looking for Richard which is free available around the world but then there was two others local stigmatic and chinese coffee which were rare films really rare i mean pacino only showed these at like screenings for his friends he, he didn't put them out into the world i mean one of them was made in 1990 and the first time anybody saw it was around 2007 the general mm. public so i had those films and i had the rest as well you know dvd vhs but to answer your question i did them i did the majority of them in chronological order. I had a list on my wall, mm. basically, which I just printed off IMDb, to be honest. Just ticked them off. That's all I did. I felt like, okay, I have I feel like I've done enough on that chapter. I will just tick it off. And that's that one done. And then it would sit there and, you know, I'd tinker with it a little bit. And then I would send it to my editor, who turned out to be uh, my old friend and ex-editor of New Empress, uh, Helen Cox, who is still my editor because... I kind of trusted her, you know, she's she's been an English teacher. She's got her own career putting out books as well now. Uh, she's hugely knowledgeable about film as well. I mean, you have to be when you're putting out a film magazine anyway. So I trusted her and she gave great feedback as well. That was the thing. So I would send stuff over to her and she would come back with notes and then I would change it. And it would go back. So it was kind of like doing, a, a, you know, I want to say a normal book. I mean, it is a normal book. That's the thing. But, you know, when you when you don't have a publisher, it can be difficult. I don't have a publisher. You know, I self-published. That right. was the thing. So I know I couldn't just put something out because the, the spelling would have been terrible. You know, th <laughs> there would have been apostrophes all over the place or something like that. So I knew I had to have an editor. Then I knew I had to have a proofreader as well. So I paid all of this myself. It, it just worked very nicely for me. I've got to be honest. I mean, it came to the point, to be honest with you, where I thought... I'll pitch this out to publishers. It's, you know, it's an interesting book. There's been the authorised biography, but the previous one to that was way back in the early 90s. I kind of thought it was kind of interesting. You know, Pacino's still a huge person. You know, you don't even need to say Al Pacino. You can just say Pacino. Everybody knows. It's like De Niro, basically. I pitched it to five publishers here in the UK. All of them had done film books as well and they all turned it down and it came to the point this is the point where I knew I thought you know what I'm just going to do this myself is that one of them turned around and said well is Al Pacino relevant anymore oh dear <laughs> no oh dear no. 
I know, I know. That was the thing. So I, I, I kind of get it to a certain degree in that it was at a point where he was making some small art house films, you know, like Manglehorn and things like that. But is Al Pacino? You, you, mm. He's always going to be relevant, even when he had the four years off camera. He's always going to be relevant because of his history and because of the films that he's done and because of him being a pioneer of acting as well. And when somebody turned around and said, is he relevant? I just kind of thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. It makes sense. And that's that's how it all happened, basically. In, in a quick nutshell, to be honest. I mean, there was a there was a lot of there was a lot of periods where I'm like, this is just terrible. This is absolutely terrible, which I imagine most writers have told you on this podcast. You just look at it and you think, this is awful. I'm just going to scrap the whole project. I mean, there were moments where I had sent chapters over to a couple of film critics who I respected here in the UK and said, would you mind reading this? I, you know, I, I'm doing this project very secretly. And I thought, if they turn around and they say they hate it, I'm going to scrap the entire thing. And this was about three quarters of the way, having written the book as well. A lot of time invested. A lot of time invested, but I just thought if they don't like it, it's just going to be laughed off the face of the planet. But they, mm. fortunately, they turned around and they said, actually, do you know what? This is really interesting. Um, I would change these bits. I would do this and whatever else. You know, they gave great notes. I think that was the thing. And for somebody who's never written a book in their life, to have that sort of feedback really helped. It really helped me focus even more. And it, it kind of gave me that impetus of, OK, what you're doing is kind of interesting here and you should expand on it. And a lot mm. of people did like the interviews as well. I think, it, as I said, because it gives a, a different dimension, you know, you're, you're reading about how it got made and little nuggets of information that maybe the director's put out in interviews or something else like that. But when you have an actor or somebody or a director or a writer or somebody like that come and giving their true side of the story and years later as well, let's face it, that's the good thing about it. Gray Fredrickson, who I interviewed for the Godfather trilogy, you know, he's the, he's the main producer on all of, well, he's the main producer on two and three. He was just mm. a producer on the first one. He gave so many great stories that he had never given before. And I think that was the beautiful thing about it is that he felt free to be able to tell a lot of good stories that, you know, if the film had come out just recently, he'd be very much on the, well, it's the promotional trail. But he was great, you know, and, but everybody was great. That was the thing. You know, there was nobody who had a bad thing to say about Pacino, even in you know this context where I'm like, well, look, it's it's an unofficial book. You can say what you want. It's right. no problem. But nobody had anything bad to say about him. Everybody had great things to say. And I think that that certainly filled me with a lot of happiness, knowing that he doesn't seem to have changed in his 60 years of acting. He still is kind of a, you know, like it's his first day on set of his first ever film. And yet here he is working with Scorsese and De Niro and Pesci. And he's trying to work out who this actor is, who this character is at the same time. And yet... He sat there on set with headphones and, a, you know, a, a little iPod listening to the speeches and everything else like that. And it, it's just kind of it's interesting. It doesn't feel like he's become this huge actor surrounded by a bubble at all. You know, he's not surrounded by yes men. And I think that's what I liked about speaking to these people is that they all had great stories, fun stories as well. What I liked about the interviews were because you were choosing people, because it wasn't Pacino or it wasn't necessarily a main like co-star, you you just got this this very different perspective. And some of the some of the people you're talking to just gave gave really interesting and sort of quite human stories, but also a, a little bit more of an insight into the filmmaking process. 
Oh, well, thank you. That's that's very kind. I'm going to write that down and make sure I mention that next time. In another, <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. You know, it it's kind of interesting because obviously people go, well, what do you write about Jack and Jill? Let's right. be honest. Right. You know, um, it is a terrible film. But I managed to write seven pages about it because it's kind of interesting how Adam Sandler write, ropes in Al Pacino to play his leading man who is romanced by Adam Sandler in drag as his sister. I mean, it's ridiculous as it sounds anyway. And then you watch the film, you're like, this is even worse. <laughs> but how does that come about? You know, but that's what I found in the book is that I'm like, okay, this is how it all came about. And then I interviewed the the director, Dennis Duggan, who's worked with Adam Sandler many times, actually. Right. Yeah. And I kind of said to him, look, this is all well and good. But you do realise that this got an absolute hammering by the critics. People literally hate this film. And he gave a really honest answer. And I'm really appreciative of him actually doing this. And he turned around and he said, that's, he said, listen, I don't listen to the critics and neither does Adam either. He said, we're looking at the box office. And he said, this film made over 200 million worldwide. He said, that's enough for us. And you know what? As much as I'm kind of like, yes, but it's not an art form. You know, if I'm going to be a snooty critic about it, I'm kind of like, yes, but it's not an art form. You know, this is Pacino who did Godfather and Serpico and he becomes the character. But at the same time, when you turn around, and you go, well, listen, Adam Sandler film, 200 million at the box office. You can't really disagree with that answer. I mean, it's a good point because I think there are. I think there are people that I've met as well in doing junkets and interviews and whatnot. And they're well aware that they're not producing art, they're producing a product and they're producing content. And for them, it's not a choice. It's not as if they're going, well, if I wasn't doing this, I could be doing art. It's like, and uh, you know, Adam Sandler can maybe do punch drunk love every now and again, and maybe yeah. do, you know, step out of his comfort zone, but his comfort zone creates it the freedom that allows him to do Punch Drunk Love. He's not doing Punch Drunk Love unless he does Jack and Jill and all the rest of it. And I think their awareness, as you say, the director's awareness and everybody working on that film, you know, it it goes beyond. It's quite easy to overlook the the critics. You just don't read the newspaper. You just don't read the trades. But then looking at it from Adam Sandler, uh, sorry, from Al Pacino's point of view, I think serious actors as well have a kind of insecurity with comedy. And so... I think you can see this with De Niro's career as well, where they don't know what's funny themselves. So they just say, okay, this guy's making the most popular comedy films. And so I'm going to go there and I'm going to do that. You know, I think Pacino and, 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 and De Niro, they can be very, very funny, but you know, they're, they're really, I don't think they're, they're, they're great when it comes to choosing scripts in that genre. I think they're much more hit and miss. You see, that's an interesting point. I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with you here, actually. Go for to it, be man. You're you, the John. expert. Because <laughs> um, Pacino always wanted to be a comedian. Right, From right. a very young age, that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to be a comedian. At first, he wanted to be a clown. Um, that's what he told his mom first. You know, he wants to be a clown. And then, obviously, they realised that's not a career path for a kid from the Bronx at all. But he was really into comedy as a teenager. And he wanted to be a comedic actor. And then obviously his career just took off within two films. Let's be honest. You know, he did he did NYPD Blue, which was one episode where it's a blink and you miss it. He then was in a Patty Duke film for about five minutes. Then he did The Panic in Needle Park, which obviously is an incredibly important film in terms of the perform uh, the, the way that they show drug taking. It was the first film that ever showed real drug taking, as in a needle going into skin 
in film history. Mm. And obviously, you know, that film launched Pacino's career because then Francis Ford Coppola saw that, wanted Pacino for the role of Michael Corleone. Paramount didn't want him. So Coppola had to screen Panic in Needle Park and they turned around and said, okay, we get it now, right, fine. But even at that point, even by the point of The Godfather, Pacino was like, well, I'll probably just do two or three straight films and then then get on the comedic path. And it didn't happen. You know, the first comedic film he did was Author, Author in the early 80s, which sadly not many people have seen. I think it's a very difficult film to find, to be honest with you. And I think it's down to licensing more than anything else. I, I think I've got it on my watch list. There's a streaming service called Chili that just basically does rent. It doesn't do subscriptions. It just does rental or buy. And I think they've, they're have they really good for, for... I've watched a lot of Al Pacino sort of want a lot of the as you say the more difficult to get such as panic panic and needle part which are, yeah i i let's talk about that for, for as, as his breakout film because i watched that last year and that film shot to the top of my best opportunity movies ever list yeah. it was uh it's just i mean it's winter in new york it's it's that new hollywood grungy element depressing subject matter element and 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 yet this sort of Underneath it all, there's this sort of skeleton of, of, of crumbling romanticism. You know, I, I think you mentioned it sort of Romeo and Juliet with with uh, with heroin uh, in, your, in your chapter. You know, how miserable is that? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I didn't know until I read your your chapter on it that it was this sort of like groundbreaking film in terms of the depiction of heroin use as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such an interesting film. I was lucky enough to do an introduction to that film here in the UK a few years ago because it doesn't get screened anywhere. That's the thing. It's very Mm. difficult to uh, screen it. Nobody really knows who's got the rights to it theatrically. Obviously, DVD and Blu-ray seems to get re-released. And as you said, it's on streaming service with yourself. But it is such an interesting film in Pacino's career because it was the one that... It didn't launch him, let's be honest. It was The Godfather that launched him. But it's the film that started him on the path that he's still on to this day. And what we need to remember about this film is that actually he came out second best in this film. Yes. You watch this film, you're like, Kitty Wynn is amazing in this film. Absolutely amazing. She acts Pacino off the screen. But Kitty Wynn, well, her career basically nosedived after, what, The Exorcist, I would say. And she left the entire industry for decades. And then she tried to come back, I I think, from vague recollection, she tried to get back in touch with Pacino. I was like, can I come and do another film with you? And he was like, well, mm, I'm not sure. Listen, it's not up to me. But her performance opposite Pacino in this one, I have to say, is one of the few times where somebody does get the better of him, Mm. especially early in his career as well. And I think Jerry Schatzberg, the director, knew that and played up to it. And he already knew what he'd got with Pacino because he'd seen him on stage and he was like, that's the guy who I want. There's nobody else I want at all. It's just Pacino. And I think he knew that actually if he if he keeps Pacino on the reins, so to speak, you're going to get a better performance from him as this drug addicted um, loner who really only has one friend and it's it's his girlfriend who's kind of on and off and they're, they're really only together because of the drugs as well and I think holding him back gave a better performance for him and it showed it certainly showed Coppola and obviously it certainly showed the Paramount executives that actually you know what for a character like Michael Corleone we need restraint we need somebody we don't need Sonny 
We don't need somebody who's going to come in and do Sonny. We need somebody who's going to be, who's going to have that slow growth as a character mm. through The Godfather. And I think that's what you get in Panic in Needle Park. It's one of those performances where you go, okay, well, Pacino's doing very well here, but he's being acted, he's being outacted by Kitty Wynn. But then you watch it again, you realise, actually, do you know what? He's holding back all the time. I interviewed Paul Calderon because he was in Sea of Love with Pacino and he said there was one day where I was on set and the producer's son Michael Bregman uh, said to him just, just come here come here he said I'm going to show you what Pacino does he said so they stood next to the camera and he said watch what he does he said he doesn't do anything and yet he comes out looking the best ever and he said I just stood there next to the camera and he said I noticed Pacino wasn't doing anything. He didn't have any lines. He just wasn't there. But he was allowing his thoughts to push the scene. And you're like, mm. there, there's not many actors who would do something like that. There's not many actors these days who are, you know, who are method actors. And I think when you have somebody like that who is able to be able to influence a scene just by sitting there, you've got a special actor. Obviously, I'm biased on this one, John. I really am biased, you know. But I think that goes back to the Panic in Needle Park is that you have him just sat there just looking around or, or the moment in the film where he's playing handball as well. You kind of think it's a little fun moment, but it gives you a glimpse into who this character is and how he sort of lives his life day to day. Yeah, I think the most devastating moment in that movie is is a reaction shot. There's a, a scene where he realises his girlfriend has taken drugs for the first time. And he his his face just collapses, and and it's she says something like, "Oh, I just I wanted to be with you. I want I, you know I want to share this with you," and his face just you know it's like, "Ah, oh, no, what what have you done?" Yeah, and you know it's interesting you say that as well because I am a massive fan of the TV show The Wire, right? And yeah. there is a direct parallel between Panic in Needle Park and the scenes that the scenes in season three of Hamsterdam where you know all the, the police have pushed all the drug dealers and the drug takers into that one area away from everybody it feels like that it really mm. does you know like mm. we're talking about a tv show that was made 30 years or something after Panic in Needle Park but you still get that reaction as you said when you see somebody and they go oh what have you done you know, you, you mm. get that in the why. You get it with Bubbles and you get it with a few of the other characters and you get it in Panic and Needle Park. As you said, you see it and you go, you, you feel heartbroken, but they're doing something illegal, which is not good for them. But at the same time, you, you just feel so sad that she has done that on her, her own and yet he wanted to do it with her. Mm. I think that's mm. the that's the interesting thing in that film is that you have this relationship where they want to be together, but the the dragon of drugs just won't let them be because they're so desperate. They're so desperate. And Pacino's character is holding back. That's the thing. You know, he's, he's really trying to hold back because he realizes this is not going anywhere. You know, the, the only way this is out is either we get clean or we, or we die, basically. And neither character looks like they can ever get clean. And mm. I think that's the sadness in the film. It's not It's not a happy film, is it? Let's be honest. No, no, absolutely. It, it, it keys into that. I mean, Joan Didion and, and her husband, John Dunn, you know, again, I think you quote it in your book where, where she says, you know, I thought we didn't, we didn't do it. We, it wasn't hard enough. And then I watched it sort of years later and thought, wow, 
we it was way harder than I, <laughs> I, I, I than we sh- than I thought we would be allowed to do it. You know. Okay, let's move to let's let's because I want to go through some of these films, especially those the ones sure. that are maybe a little bit less spoken about, and so it'd be an opportunity as well for our listeners to sort of build up a watch list of stuff they might not have seen. But we can't pass over Mar- Michael Corleone totally did you sort of um learn something new when you were writing that chapter on the godfather because you said previously it wasn't a film you particularly loved it was just a film that's all there i i learned something new every time i watched the godfather i think that's the beauty of that film um i remember actually that and i tell the story quite a bit actually is that i'd seen as i said i'd seen the godfather and then years later i went back to it and i thought okay well, when's Pacino turning up? Because obviously I was used to 90s Pacino and his age. And then, you know, the wedding and whatever else. And, you know, and I'm like, well, when's Pacino turning up? So I had to look on IMDb. I'm like, oh, he's here. Wow, look mm. how young he is. You know, I think that was the thing is that it kind of shocked me that I, I was so used to it. There's, I mean, there's so much about The Godfather. You know, other books have been written about it, but it is the, the de- I mean, there's a reason why it's still classed as one of the all-time great films, not just mob films either. Let's be honest. One of the all-time great films is because that it took a pulpy book. Let's be honest. You know, mm-hmm. Puzo's book is not the film at all. And Coppola turned it into this masterpiece and you find so many different characters in it. I think that's the beauty of it is that it's the different characters, the complexities of each one. You know, you you kind of are instantly drawn to Sonny because he's the hothead. He's mm. the guy who wants retribution. Yeah, God. And then he dies and you think, OK, this is interesting. Then you have Michael, who, as I'd said earlier, has this slow rise. He's very calculating. You know, he everything is going on. You can see his eyes moving, taking everything in, but he's not saying anything. And you realize, okay, this is the guy you should be afraid of. And it is easily one of the most chilling scenes, I think, in film history is right at the end where all of a sudden Kay is stood outside the door. Michael is in there. There's two other people in there. They start to kiss his hand. And Al Neary comes and shuts the door. And in that moment, Kay Corleo knows, okay, I've now married a mobster. And yet at the start of the film, he says, I'm me, I'm not my family. And within two hours and what, 40 something minutes, that change has happened. And suddenly we see a completely different person. And that's when Kay knows, I don't know how to get out of this. And you can see the anguish in her face. And I think it's one of the most amazing scenes ever but there's no words to it. Mm. I think that's the wonderful mm. thing about The Godfather is that there are so many scenes with no words in it. And, you know, it's. I think it's just one of those things that everybody works so well together. I mean, Coppola had a torrid time making it. Paramount mm. were constantly on his back. Um, but Brando had a great time making it. Brando was classed as the mighty moon king because he kept mooning people. <laughs> they had a belt made for him that said mighty moon king on it. And I think that's where Pacino really understood the craft because Brando took him under his wing Mm. and showed him method acting and showed him how he can find the character. And then obviously, you know, he'd been at the actor's studio at that time. And I think for everybody in that film, it did something for their career and still does something for their career. But it gave them I think it gave them a different way of looking of how to how to do performances. Certainly Pacino, obviously, you know, everything's going on there. And yet nothing is said. I think that's the beauty of it. Um, you know, it, it's the same with the second. There's always going to be the argument of which one is better. Is it the first or the second? Let's be honest. 
they're both masterpieces. There's people, there's directors out there who would cut off an arm and a leg to make at least Godfather Part Three. Never yeah. mind about Part One and Two. And I'm I'm a person who will stick up for Part Three. By the way, I think it's a good film. But I think you know that that first Godfather film changes everything. It changed everything really in Hollywood as well, didn't it? Let's be honest. You know, the seventies were a big change culturally for films being made in Hollywood. And I think that was one of the big ones, you know, Easy Rider, Raging Bull, uh, Raging Bull. Easy Riders as well was one of them. Um, I, I think it was that era where it would never have been made before. And to have a cast like that as well, a cast of really unknowns. I rewatched re it quite recently and I watched the, the, the whole trilogy in, because I wanted to watch Godfather Coda, the mm. sort of new cut of the Godfather 3. One thing that always strikes me is how much of a performance that is that's thought out over the entire film, that he sort of like, he uses, as you say, Shouty Pacino turns up like, but twice in, yeah. the, in, in the two movies. And so when it does, I remember watching Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the, the recent sort of, well, it's not particularly recent, the um, Thomas Alfredson one with Gary Oldman. And I think he... I think that's a really his cat um his smiley is a really is a Pacino performance because it's quiet it's totally understated the whole way through and then he shouts at Colin Firth right at the end and it it, it knocks you back because you've just not even known that this rage was in this guy mm. and and yet retrospectively you think well of course it was always there he was yeah. you know like like the incredible hulk says you know <laughs> i'm always angry you know i'm always holding it back and the same sort of true of sort of michael he's not being calm because he's preternaturally calm he's being calm because he's it's an act of discipline you know yeah i mean the look at the way he treats his brother and he realizes that it's his brother that has double crossed him anybody else would have gone full guns blazing let's be honest Instead, he goes up, he kisses him, he tells him it was him, and then his brother runs. Mm, but he doesn't mm. get too far. He comes back, and then they have that sit down. Well, you know, Pacino stood up, and uh, you know his brother sat down, and then it all ends on the lake. Mm, mm. It's not, it's not a violent scene, and yet it should be because the family have been portrayed. Mm, and mm. if somebody like Sonny was in charge, it would have been all guns blazing. But Michael's. A methodical person every mm. step of the way apart from in part three obviously where he loses it and i think that's the interesting thing about part three is that we have a redemption of you know a mob boss which mm. obviously we see a lot now you know let's be honest you know the sopranos really kind of kicked that into gear a little bit but at that time we'd never seen that everybody just wanted mob bosses to kill people and then they turn around and they go right we're going to do godfather part three and everybody's like great fantastic and actually what's going to happen is michael corleone is going to try and repent his sins and the way he's going to do that is he's going to go to the Vatican and try and help them out with money. And I think at the time when part three came out, people were like, this is not the film we're expecting. Mm. And it didn't, I mean, it didn't, it did big business. It did okay. You know, it, it got award nominated, but I think a lot of people were disappointed. But you look back at it now and you're like, but the, you know, the Immobilari story, the Vatican story is happening now in real life. That's the thing. It's one of those stories that's constantly happening now. So, Part three, to a certain degree, is ahead of its time. I think a lot of people have got a problem with it, with certain actors being in it. I don't, to be honest with you. But you know, that's a whole that's a whole other podcast here, John. Really, sure, we're sure. talking about. Sure. Um, but you wanted other, you wanted to talk about other films. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, the only thing I'd say in terms of the Sopranos link, we've got. I mean, Godfather Part Three is the, is the Godfather that they quote 
interminably that, that's exactly. the one they're constantly referring to you know it's a little i mean that's a clever thing about the sopranos is they always ref- have a relationship with cinema but it always hits you at an un- unexpected angle so mm. when martin scorsese turns up in i think well, it may even be the first episode christopher shouts come done i love it <laughs> you know it's not like goodfellas or casino <laughs> it's come done that he's uh, <laughs> it's his favorite scorsese movie i liked it he says um, okay yeah let's let's go on to some of those lesser known Pacino performances and and then we'll come back to some of the big hitters uh, a little bit later but Scarecrow he does with Gene Hackman and I think that's one of the lesser seen and again I watched that and thought this film should be right at the top of of the top five it's 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 so good and two amazing performances as well Gene Hackman rates that as the best film he's ever made wow I didn't know that Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah Um, you're right. It's, it's, it is lesser seen. It's, it's sadly lesser seen as well. Um, it's a comedy road trip. Mm. Let's be honest. It's two opposites who find solace in each other. It's a little bit Midnight Cowboy, isn't it? It has it that, is, I wonder if that sort of stole its thunder a little bit. It, it's also a bit Thunderbolt and Lightfoot right, as well. Yeah. But it's got, you know, going back to Pacino being the comedian, there's comedic moments in that, you know, where where they're talking about the scarecrow or where Gene Hackman's character rings him up. You know, he, he pretends to call him up, basically. And yeah. then when they they meet the two women who they try to go to bed with and it doesn't really work out for, for Pacino's character and everything. There's a lot of fun in this movie. And sadly, not a lot of people have seen it. And, you know, Jerry Schatzberg, again, who directed Panic in Needle Park, really got the best out of both of them. But Hackman and Pacino hated each other on that film. Really? Absolutely detested each other because Hackman would show up on set half an hour, an hour before he was very much, these are the lines, I'm going to say the lines. That was it. Pacino would float onto set an hour afterwards or something and he'd Mm. sort of know the lines but not really know the lines and it was kind of like hey maybe if I improvise and you know when you have one who's improvising and one who's really sticking to the lines it's not going to go well no so it didn't work out very well for them at any point but you don't see that on the film that's the thing on the film you think these two are are such wonderful characters such colorful characters and I think that's the great thing about certainly writing the book is that I found out that they didn't like each other. And you watch the film, you're like, how can they not like each other? It looks like they're having an absolute blast mm. going across America until obviously the sadly depressing ending, which is just a, a it's a bolt out the blue, isn't it? Mm. And mm. you think, how do you leave a film like that? And that's literally what happens is the film just ends and you go, what, what? Well, we need to know. And Jerry Schatzberg's written a sequel. He, he wrote a sequel right. about 15 years ago. And Pacino's interested, but Hackman won't do it because obviously he's retired. And he said, I'm not doing it unless we have both people back. You know, I'm not going right, to do right. son of Gene Hackman's character or something like this. It just wouldn't work. So he has this script ready for whatever it would be called, Scarecrow 2. I can't imagine it would be called that because there's a horror film called that. But yeah, that that's such a brilliant film. I agree with you. It should always be top five, top seven Pacino. And sadly, not many people have seen it. So, I mean, high recommendation for that. You are right to pick that one out. So you have sort of other sort of, you have the Lumet collaborations, which mm. uh, Dog Day Afternoon and what's the other one? Serpico. Yeah. Mm. Oh no, I'm thinking, is it maybe Norman Jewison who does the, the courtroom drama one? Oh, and Justice for All. 
and yeah. Justice for All. Yes, mm, yeah. Mm. So the two, I mean, the two laments are staggering as well. But I mean, I think they're they're, they're rightly celebrated and quite yes. quite quite visible. You know. Yes. Yeah. I think I think the easy thing to say is that Pacino loved working with Lamette because Lamette gave him time to rehearse. If you right. wanted three months, you got three months, and you. You see interviews with Pacino now where he's like, you don't get time to rehearse. He said, that's what I loved working with Lamette is that we got time to rehearse. Um, and that doesn't happen now. I'll Obviously, I know you want to work, move on to some of the lesson, but I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story about Dog Day Afternoon is that Frank Pearson, the guy who wrote it, was working with Pacino in pre-production. And there was initially in the script a scene where Pacino's... Uh, Pacino's character would ha uh, would kiss his lover, not his wife, but his lover, you know, uh, played by Chris Sarandon. And they were workshopping it. And Pacino turned around to Chris Pearson and said, I'm not doing this. Uh, sorry, Frank Pearson. And Frank Pearson said, well, it's in the script. He said, no, no, I'm not. I'm not doing it. He said, no, no, I'm not. I'm not kissing this. Uh, I'm not kissing my lover. No, it, it, no, no. And that was the end of the conversation. And then about three weeks went by. They hadn't seen each other. And... Uh, Pacino called up Pearson and said, well, are you getting rid of me? You know, are you firing me or something? He said, mm. no, no. Why would we do that? He said, we'll just, we'll, you know, we still want you to do the thing. He said, but why won't you do the kiss? Is it because you don't want to kiss a man? And he said, no, no. It's, it said, it's nothing to do with that. He said, the problem would be is if I kiss Chris Sarandon, that's all anybody's ever going to talk about with that film. And those characters and that film is so much more than just a male kiss. And I think that tells you everything about it is that he would rather turn around and say, actually, this character has a whole, you know, closeted homosexual life going on. And if you get that kiss, you kind of get that release, whereas in the film, you don't get that release at all. Yeah. I, and I'm, I mean, that's an argument that you could you could say went on right into the 80s and 90s with films like Philadelphia, where they were tamped down any explicit sort mm. of i mean and by explicit i mean even rudimentary portrait yes. of, of gay sexuality so so Lum, so he has lumet he has his serpico and he has his dog day afternoon and they're and they're you know nailed on classics yeah. and then he's sort of he's also doing some some other films around there which are, are sort of less seen less successful perhaps like uh, bobby deerfield is one that is it's so of its time watching it now <laughs> For some reason, watching it now, it sort of epitomizes that sort of late 70s, early 80s. Well, I think it's late 70s, sort of sort of aftershave advert aesthetic. It's just like people driving a lot and, and in mountains and wearing brilliant clothes and great glasses, eyewear, and kind of quite enigmatic. And there was also this bunch of movies about like car racing as well, which I mean, James Garner had Grand Prix and Steve McQueen had Le Mans. And they... Yeah, Bobby Didfield didn't really hit the heights. And no. I think... Um... But I mean, it's a really worthwhile film. I really yeah. like... I mean, I, I, I'm not being critical of it saying that it's like an aftershave advert, but <laughs> it's... It, it, it's kind of a really good aftershave. <laughs> it is. I completely agree. And the thing is, let's face it, is that by the end of the 70s, Pacino was heartthrob number one across the world. Right. And all he'd done was smolder in a very smart three-piece suit in The Godfather. No, nobody had seen him do an aftershave advert, as you said. Right. You know? So I think part of this was, well, let's get him in some sexy clothes. Let's do his hair in some sort of bouffant or something like that. Let's get him having a romance with somebody. Let's have him playing a race car driver because that's a sexy job as well. You're right. It is very much of its time. It's not the best Pacino performance, I have to say. Mm -hmm. He's quite moody all the way through it in mm -hmm. a sort of, 
I don't know if he gets the character that much. Yeah, it's an interesting film. Sadly, still unreleased here in the UK. Um, it's owned by Warner Brothers. They just won't release it. I don't really understand why. It's available all other territories. You know, people have put out some really good Blu-rays on it. But I, I just wonder if it's because it's that film. At the end of the 70s, you go, yes, look what he did. The Godfathers and Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and Panic in Needle Park. And he did Bobby Deerfield, but don't mention Bobby <laughs> Deerfield. You know, yeah, it's a curious film. It really is. You're right. It's of its time. If you had it as a double bill with Grand Prix, I think you'd be fine. But it's, you know, the fact that he's trying to romance this woman who is suicidal isn't the most uplifting stories either. A bit, bit creepy, isn't it? <laughs> That's exactly the right word. Creepy. Yes, it is a bit creepy. Yeah, you're right. Yes. I think it's it's one of those contradictions that you sometimes have. It, it happens a lot in literature as well, where where people sort of purposefully say, you know, the reason this character is two dimensional is because it's I'm I'm talking about an absence of effect. I'm talking about a, a sort of empty subject, and then you you sort of go, yeah, but it it just looks like a two dimensional character. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I get it that you did it intentionally, but the but the, you know you know he's supposed to be a boring person. That's why he's yeah. a boring person, and it's like yeah. yeah. But it just it leaves me feeling a bit empty watching it. Um, but but yeah, but then he goes on. And Justice for All, I'm going to skip over because that's on my sure. watch list. I haven't seen yet. Great film, great film, really good film. Um, a lot of comedy in it. Really interesting cast as well. Uh, Thomas Waits is in that. Who I'm, I'm pleased to say I interviewed for the book and has stayed a friend. Most people will know him from the Warriors, and he went on to work with Pacino on the stage as well. So, I mean, he's got loads of stories to tell me. I mean, it could have filled a book on its own, to be honest with you, John. Mm. I mean, he's got so many. But um, yeah, it's an interesting film. Kind of funny, kind of not. It it, it doesn't know where it should be placed. I think that's the interesting thing about it. Mm. Oh, well, that's definitely on my watch list. Mm. Cruising with Friedkin. Ooh. I mean, now this is, this is, uh, I mean, it depends a little bit what, what uh, there are, I think there are several cuts of this floating around as well, mm. but I watched one of the most recent sort of uh, Blu-ray. I, I think this is a really underrated film. I know it got a lot of stick at the time for being homophobic and, you know, aligning the gay community with sort of a sort of sleazy look from outside sort of thing. But I, I in a way, I sort of think it's time has come. I think in a if you look at it and you don't see the the gay community as being so much besieged as I imagine that as I imagine they felt very much in 1980 you can just kind of enjoy it as a glimpse of this culture that that uh, that was there see I I've written in the book I don't I don't like the film I do right. find it CD I do find it quite disgusting it doesn't work for Pacino you know Pacino wanted to work with Friedkin Friedkin wanted to work with Pacino it just didn't work for them in fact they they fell out quite badly they they just didn't work together that well it's interesting I do agree with you that it has sort of come of age now I think it has been reassessed and a lot of people are finding something interesting in it. I did a screening of it in London a couple of years ago. It was for, oh, forgive me to the people who are listening, who are there. Um, it was for uh, some sort of, oh, I'm trying to think now, it was it was like a bondage festival or something like ah, that. Okay. okay. And obviously they wanted to show that um, and it hadn't been shown on the big screen for about four or five years. So they asked me to come down and talk about it. But a lot of people in that in that cinema had not seen that film. Right. And they had somebody come on stage with us as well and ask them what they thought to it. And they said, I just don't understand why it finishes like it is. Like 
who is the killer? And I'm like, mm. well, that's part of it is that nobody really knows. It's meant to keep you in suspense, but really it doesn't work that well, I don't think. He's trying to repeat the French connection sort yeah, of you're ambigu ambiguous right. ending. I mean, there are different things. We've There are different types of ambiguity. There's a sort of Christopher Nolan at the end of Inception type where he's yeah. just like, well, just leave the camera running another few minutes and we'll be absolutely certain. You know, yes. you've, you've just skipped something that otherwise we would <laughs> know exactly, you know, what it is. And, and there's the ambiguity that's sort of like in the DNA of the thing. So, you know, Rashomon, you know, you just, there's mm. no way of knowing who's telling the right story. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people who have only just come to it are not a fan of. Um, mm. But then, as you said, mm. a lot of people are kind of finding something interesting about it as well. I will say this is that it didn't work out for Pacino. I mean, he, he only spoke about the film once. Right, that was right. A, that was a few lines when he was interviewed. Um, I think it was for Variety around the film's release. But he did put a million pounds in a bond, and all of their all of the interest would go towards LGBTQ societies, and that's still going to this day. Right, right. I just think honestly, thought experiment. Put this film in Fran in French and subtitle it, and it would be raved about. And hmm. all of those issues would would wouldn't necessarily disappear, but I I think I think it, there was a, a lot of animosity towards Friedkin at the time, so I mm. think he was ready for a fall. I do I agree with you. I don't think the film works totally, and it certainly it certainly goes a long way to alienating a lot of the people who would normally be going to see Al Pacino in a cop movie. <laughs> Um, but, can but you that, imagine? But that, can can, you imagine? that's kind of what makes it brilliant. I guess so. Yeah. I like that punkish sort of attitude. I had it. met somebody at a screening who told me that their their mum was a huge Al Pacino fan and they took them to see their first Al Pacino film and it was cruising. Oh, my word. Because <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know. They were just like, hey, it's Al Pacino in leather. Ooh, saucy. This is going to be and, great. And then, yeah, so it was the mum and the daughter and you were like, I don't think this is the film for you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she she always remembered it. I'm trying to think who it was. It was it was somebody who told me. I thought it was hilarious, really. When you go to see films, it, it uh, the context is really interesting. I remember seeing Brokeback Mountain in a multiplex in Italy, and it was packed because it was a lot of pe a lot of girls with their boyfriends going to see Jake Gyllenhaal and and Heath Ledger, and the the discomfort crackling <laughs> through that that cinema was really fascinating uh, but <laughs> but obviously everyone stayed till the end and everybody watched it you know there wasn't but I, I and it I does make you sort of think well you know that picture would have had a huge influence because that it does yep. you know those people were confronted for the first time with well well I'm not saying all of them obviously because there's probably a large section of the audience that were perfectly comfortable with that but some of them were being confronted with something that they really weren't comfortable in seeing or, yeah, or appreciating yeah, yeah. oh and, I, I completely agree with you and I, I think that's going back to it I think that is part of the brilliance of Pacino is that he actually makes some of these films that confront a lot of people's already their thoughts that they already have about certain characters you know you've only got to look at Scarface I mean we can gloss over Scarface so much has been said about it anyway but when you have somebody come in like that, um, especially at that time in America as well, and all of a sudden Americans are rooting for an immigrant, mm. 
because he's wanting to live the American dream. Suddenly you think, hang on, you know, here I am shouting to keep the immigrants out. And yet at the same time, I'm shouting because Al Pacino is playing an immigrant and I want him to succeed because he's killing people with guns and taking copious amounts of drugs and gets all the women. You know, th there's that interesting quandary there, I think, that Pacino is playing some of these characters who you should, you know, you should hate, mm. absolutely mm. hate. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And yet he makes them not likable. I won't say likable, but he makes you appreciate them. Oh, definitely. I think he definitely had, because I know he, you know, it's that dichotomy. He He's definitely a serious actor and he's definitely a movie star. So when the serious actor in him wants to do something serious, he's bringing the movie star along with him anyway. Yes. And and it's, and that, and therein lies a lot of the sort of ambiguity around Scarface. One thing I would, this is a theory I have, and like many of my theories, it probably do, doesn't make much sense. But I always think in, in a great movie star's career, there is one role that kind of make, makes and breaks them at the same time. So with Jack Nicholson, it would be Jack Torrance in The Shining. Mm. Maybe even One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where they sort of, where they do something so well, it kind of, he becomes Mad Jack and, and therein you get the Joker and you get his sort of off-screen persona. With Pacino, I think Scarface is that, is that role which which sort of is in danger of sort of breaking him as an actor because he just becomes this other iconic figure. What do you think of that as a theory? I would agree with you. Hey. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely would. You know, there, we, we've been just talking about, you know, some of his great performances, Serpico, Michael Corleone, Dog Day Afternoon. And, you know, we can list more as well, you know, Insider as well, something like that. Mm. But I, I do think he's overwhelmed by Scarface, the amount of people that love that film and to this day still love that film. Rightly so. You know, listen, you know, I'm not a huge lover of it. I think it's a good film, not a huge lover of it. But I do think it is the film that somebody goes to see a Pacino film and they think it's OK. Scarface is here. And you think, mm. no, 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 you know, at no point is Scarface turning up in Danny Collins. Let's be honest. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's just not happening. But I, I do agree with you. And it's a really good point that you make that actually maybe actors are made and broken with one film and that's all they do. You know, you you go to Comic-Cons. I do anyway. Right. And you see these actors 
and the majority of stuff they're signing is from probably one or two films all yeah. the time. And you think they probably just sit there and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they go, oh, you know, this film changed my life. And they think, oh, another person who's, you know, tells mm. me this and whatever else. Yeah, I think the good thing is that Pacino has never backed away from Scarface. He's always seen it as, you know, a pivotal moment in his career. Um, he always goes to the reunions when they do it as well. I think they did a 30-year anniversary union a few years ago, so everybody mm. was there for that. I think that's the good thing, is that he realised that this film did get him back on top. Let's be honest, you know, mm. he fought for it, because it was meant to be De Niro and Scorsese making this film. Right, right. And then that fell apart. Pacino saw the original version, called up his manager, producer, Marty Bregman, and said, we've got to do Scarface. We've got to do it. And then obviously Oliver Stone came in and wrote it. And then, you know, De Palma came in and directed it. And you know, let's be honest, directed the shit out of it as oh, an action film. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my goodness, you know, it, th there's people out there who have not seen this film who still know quotes from it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's when you have a legacy of a film that do, you're right. Yeah. It makes you and it breaks you. I think mm. that's the thing. Mm. But yeah, here we are talking about Scarface. And I'm like, yeah, we can gloss over it <laughs> all the time. Well, let's talk about Revolution. That's a film I haven't seen. That's okay. a film that is on my watch list. Um, yeah. Should I watch that one? You should watch the director's cut. Ah, okay. OK. OK, so uh, Revolution made in the 1980s here in the UK. Pacino comes over. He's on he's on stage in the evening in the West End. Um, doing Huey during the day he's going to Kings Lynn for anybody who doesn't know where Kings Lynn is it's in Norfolk it is a small town um, but it looks like um, American Revolution era it's kind of weird so Pacino would travel from London to Kings Lynn which is about two and a half hours every single day to do this film um, it was a miserable experience because it was Goldcrest films who were running out of money because they were making right. Revolution and at the same time they were making The Mission with De Niro it's it's a film that really well Pacino didn't make a film for four years after it yeah yeah it's quite kind of screwed him up yeah it did but i think there was a lot of things going on you know pacino was obviously stretching himself too much he got pneumonia as well because they were filming in the rain quite a lot he didn't really get on with a few co-stars either he got on with some others it's it's kind of one of those weird mixes that if you watch the original you're like this is a terrible film and right. i write that in the book is that you know this is not a good film it's yeah, a mess yeah. but warner brothers years later warner brothers stumped up some cash to go back and basically allow Pacino and Hugh Hudson to create this director's cut with a narration over it, because that's what Hugh Hudson had always wanted. He wanted a narration over the top of it, and the original film doesn't have it. And they went back and they made such an, a completely different film. You know when people talk about the when you make a film and then you get the director's cut and how different it is and there's not many films where the director's cut is vastly different and no. vastly superior i'm kind of thinking maybe kingdom of heaven is one of those films yeah he still keeps orlando bloom so uh, yeah, <laughs> just there's a limit to how much you can, you can <laughs> polish that particular valid point valid point that's what happened with this is that here in the uk the bfi put it out around the world i think it was warner's very different film it, mm. You know, there's still problems with it. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's a much better film. And with the narration, and the narration is done by Pacino at that time, who was probably, I would say, he was probably in his late sixties, something like that. So mm. the grizzled elder statesman narration works better now than if he had been doing it when the film came out. Mm. Basically, when mm. he got a bit of a high pitched voice. Yeah, it's it's a film that I think probably doesn't work for Americans, but actually works for the Brits because 
it's all filmed here and you kind of go oh well that just looks like the road down you know the street down the road or something it is a curious piece i will say that i mean i i made a, a special trip to king's lynn to take photos of where they shot it and it still looks the same like nothing has changed at that's where all. annie lennox uh, <laughs> but that's what it was like i had these stills and I'm like that's where annie lennox told pacino to get lost and you know yeah, this yeah. is where there was just loads of bits where i'm like this looks exactly the same yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting film. I, I will stick up for the director's cut. I will not stick up for the original, which is on TV here in the UK about once a week because obviously it's the cheap version. Cheap, cheap Channel 5 sort of yes. uh, favourite. So he goes away, he goes, goes back to the theatre and <coughs> renounces cinema f- for four years, comes back with See a Love, which I think is kind of a bit of a forgotten movie now. It's a little bit, it, it was in a wave of sort of the erotic thriller, nine yep. and a half weeks or Fatal attraction that sort of thing uh that's then he does the local stigmatic which he directs as well I yeah think. yeah okay. this is one of those films that never got released here in you UK. mentioned it earlier that it was yeah. a, a really i mean i think i've seen him talk about it and him say that it, it was almost like it was a film he didn't necessarily want people to see because it was sort of such a personal project yes and yes. he would show it to friends and yes. not necessarily that's exactly right. Yeah, he didn't really want to put it out, but um, years later, obviously, somebody came with some money and said, if we put out local stigmatic Chinese coffee and looking for Richard in a box set, can we do it? And mm. that's where it started. It, I mean, it's a film that is barely an hour. It's quite a nihilistic film as well, whereas Chinese coffee is a, is a play. You know, right, it's right. just, it's him and Jerry Orbach, this is Chinese coffee, just really going at each other. Uh, and it has Pacino doing an English accent, and it is the worst English accent you've ever... I mean, Dick Van Dyke would be screwing at how bad Pacino's English accent in, in it is. It's so bad. There we go a little bit again with that sort of serious actor slash movie star thing, is that there are parts of his technical craft which I just don't think are his strong points. And mm. so doing accents is definitely not one of the you know there are other actors who like daniel day lewis who he's craft wise he's absolutely everybody gets distracted with the method bullshit but just in terms of his craft mm. he he knows how to do an accent he and, and how to hold a character yeah. and uh yeah the local stigmatic i i've watched and it is barely watchable <laughs> because of because of the accent because you're you're wow you know you're you're just constantly stopping yourself from it's you know. bad. Yeah. I mean, if for anybody who hasn't seen the film, there are clips on YouTube that you can watch just of the accent. And you, I mean, I don't think you'll last the five minute clip. I'll be honest. It's, yeah. You're right. It's it's bad. It's barely watchable. I can't remember if I watched the whole thing. And as you say, it is only an hour. So it's po- I tell you what I think I did. I think I put it on, started watching it and then sort of went and made lunch or something <laughs> while it was still on. Just what with the sort of my body decided, okay, brain, you, you, you got to decide what to put on. Now I'm going to go and make lunch. <laughs> um, so we go to, then he sort of is picking up sort of, in a sense, he's really, because I remember when he came back in Sea of Love and I, I remember thinking, wow, he's physically changed. He's, yes. he's a, there's a real, you know, there's a real split between young Pacino and, and, uh, you know the second part of his career really yeah fiery pacino i think is what we could start right. with sea of love you know i mean let's be honest it, sea of love he's smoldering in it you know uh romance not even romance in trying to romance alan barkin who is equally as sexy in that film and damn that film is incredibly sexy sure you know, the, the the sex scene 
in the bedroom where the rain is at the window and whatever else. Okay, now you look at it and you're like, yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a joke, it's a bit of a cliche. But at the time, it wasn't. You know, erotic thrillers were huge. Um, but yeah, it, you're right. He came back and he looked very different. He looked like he had chiselled himself up. He was like, right, I'm now an adult actor who is going to go out and find very different roles. Yeah, and- he's definitely not a sex symbol anymore, is he? I mean, even the, he makes that sexy film, but it's kind of almost like this there's the incongruity of this yeah. you know slightly past the hill geezer he does the same again in frankie and johnny where it's sort of like these aren't too they're very self-consciously not two young lovebirds they're yeah you know they but they're both broken people basically yeah. and i think because they're both broken they find solace in each other it's not that they they mend each other it's just that they realize both of us are broken and maybe being together will will help us you know that that's a lovely film i really like that film it's so tender mm. um and going back to it you know pacino's funny in it really that's true. funny yeah. in it yeah. Yeah. and michelle pfeiffer is funny in it as well um yeah it's it's sadly underappreciated i think that one and then even when you get him doing his sort of uh, he gets bit roles in well more than bit roles in dick tracy that's, i mean it's fantastic i mean let, let's be honest you know that performance is the start of the outlandish Pacino, the shouty Pacino, let's be honest. But that's what Big Boy Caprice in the comics and in the Dick Tracy TV shows was like. Yeah. So it made sense that you would have somebody like Pacino. Now, obviously, we look back and we're like, yeah, of course. But, you know, he really pushed for that role, really right, pushed right. for it um, and went through so many makeup tests and everything else like that. Madonna was scared of him as well. How come? Um, because he was just so ferocious. Right. When, right. when he would put the latex on and everything, he became Big Boy Caprice. Madonna was scared of him as well. And I love that story about it, you know, that uh, Madonna, you know, is scared of Pacino like that. Yeah. But he loved that. And also, let's not forget, we still talk about um, superhero comic book movies being nominated for Oscars. Pacino's Big Boy Caprice performance was the first comic book character nominated for an Oscar. I think people forget Dick Tracy, you know. I think, I mean, I, it was a big success at the time, but I think Huge. because it wasn't Batman, it didn't, you know, and it didn't have sequels, it, you know, I don't know. I, I think because it was much more adult and the way it looked, I mean, it's beautifully shot. I mean, the, the you know, the way that the the nightlight and all of the colours so stand out beautifully. But, you know, Bait has treated it like shit, let's be honest. It's a bare-bones DVD and Blu-ray. He's done nothing else. He still owns the copyright for it. He won't do anything for it. He won't relinquish it. And I think that's part of the problem, is that when you have a celebrated filmmaker like Warren Beatty, who made a film like this, you know, he was after it as well. He wanted to do it. And then he's just like, yeah, well, whatever, we're just going to throw it away. A lot of people forget about it. And it's a shame because it's got a great cast. Let's be honest, you know, Dustin Hoffman's in there, who is Pacino's arch rival for for decades. Uh, You know, it's it's such a great film. It really is. It's good fun. It's, It's a good adult comic book movie with a cracking Pacino performance. And talking about arch rivals, one of my favorite roles in this period from him is uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, because he's he just walks in, in into a room full of like great actors. You got Alan Arkin, you got Kevin Spacey, okay, great actor despite everything. Jack Lemon, of course, and Al Pacino walks in and just owns the room. <laughs> you know, just absolutely. Yeah. He's not, you know, he's 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 maybe not even he's not even in the Alec Baldwin scene. 
And yet yeah. he's he doesn't need to be because he's such a powerful character that if he was in that scene, that scene wouldn't be credible anymore because he yes. would not take that shit. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. That is an actor's film, isn't it? Let's be honest. That is actors in a room. I mean, I saw it on the stage a few years ago and Christian Slater played the role that uh, Pacino played. And, you know, you have to have a certain certain attitude. You have to have big balls yeah. to play that role. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, it's all well and good doing the Alec Baldwin role, but it's it's 10 minutes. But you have to have big balls to play Ricky Roma. And Pacino comes in, suave suit, knocks the shit out of everybody else. Let's be honest, disappears for ages. And then you get caught up in Jack Lemmon's story. And then all of a sudden there becomes this really nice story where it's the hotshot Ricky Roma trying to help the elder statesman who had helped him when he turned up. And everything. it's a it is a brilliant film. It's an actor's film. I mean, Pacino loved working on that. Yeah, I can I'd imagine. Found a, I'd found a quote that said when it was his last day and he got to give a speech, he ended up crying. Right, right. Because he loved working on it so much because there was so much dialogue than anything. He loved the dialogue. And he still does love the dialogue. You know, everything's on the page. I think that's the great thing, you know. And there's such great swearing in that. I mean, he just, when he, I remember watching it at the cinema and you don't use the C word very often. You don't hear the C word coming out of an actor's mouth in a Hollywood movie very often. And he fucking rips into that word yeah. with yeah. such, you know, oh man, it's it's poetry. I mean, I know it's David Mamet, so what else do you expect? But I think it's the height of David Mamet. I think it's, it's the best thing he ever did. And I think see, it's, it's interesting you say, you know, I, I think Mamet, the, the, there is a certain beat to, to, to Mamet's work. Sure. And I think you either get it or you don't get it. You know, I've seen other works of Mamet. I mean, you've only got to think that obviously Mamet wrote Phil Spector with Pacino and Helen right. Mirren. Yeah. And I think it can be difficult for actors to get those beats, to get that flowing right. But when you find that dialogue, because it is heavy dialogue, let's be honest, you know, it's it's a lot without much movement. When you do find it, it you're, you're right. All of a sudden, you're just bowled over by brilliant acting. Whoever mm. it is, you know, Jack Lemmon's fantastic in it as well. Um, you know, the, the whole cast is amazing, let's be honest. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a film that people do bring up occasionally, but not enough. I think it. I, th I think it has a certain. Le I mean, it's a film stage play, so it has an. A, a, there's an element of, mm. you've you've sort of got to go with that, and it's got certain unities that uh, that aren't aren't very common in in movies generally. Yeah. But yeah, it, it it knocks me. I remember seeing it in the cinema; it blew me away, and I've rewatched it several times, and it's every time so yeah. it's so good. Going into sort of a a later period, you've got him in. I mean, Carlito's way is uh, turning, coming back with the... I, I, I think I, I might even prefer Carlito's way to Scarface. Do you know how many people tell me that? So many people tell me that. And I'm I think just, it's because it's interesting. I'm just a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> but I write it in the book as well. Right, is that, you listen, you know, that. I like Scarface, but I think Carlito's way is, once again, it's, you know, it's, it's a gangster trying to go straight. You know, you know, he's done bad things, but he just wants to fall in love. That's all it is. He mm. just wants to fall in love. And you kind of get that. And I, I do agree with you. I think Carlito's Way is a better, better film because it's not as big. You know, Scarface mm. is this big, frenetic piece of work. Whereas Carlito's Way, granted, there's that amazing chase sequence. Let's be honest. I mean, God, people have been ripping off that bloody chase sequence for decades now, haven't they? But I think it's just much more intelligent. I think the characters yeah. are much better. 
you know, I think that's the great thing about it. I love Sean Penn in it. I think it was Sean Penn actually doing a real character. And I think you had the beginning of Sean Penn as a character actor rather than as Sean Penn, you know, yeah. Mr. Madonna, you know? Yes, yes. The Insider, I think, is, uh, he had a couple of films with Michael Mann. He had, does The Insider, which... I. I when he's working with Michael Mann, he seems to take on this sort of quite generous role of of being something of a foil to another actor. Mm. You know, I don't think I'm not sure how he would view it, but there's, I don't think there's anything in the insider way you're not thinking this is actually Russell Crowe's film, and I'm just framing it. And similarly with Heat, you know, okay, I'm the guy who's going to get him in the end, but it's this is really De Niro's yeah. journey. You know, yeah. uh, do you think that's true? I just think once again he likes he liked working with Michael Mann. I think right. he found the new Lamette. Right. Really. Right. I think you know the fact that he got time to rehearse to find the character. Um, the Insider for me is is an amazing piece of work. And for somebody who has no idea about that story either, so when you what you know when I saw it, I'm like I don't know who these people are. Because we we didn't get that here in the UK. We had no idea who these people were. So all you knew was. This is an expose movie. That's all it was. 60 minutes. What's that? that it's like panorama. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like world in action. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yes. I, I just, yeah, you're right in that. I think probably you look at it and you go, well, you know, they're, they're, they're head to head in terms of the amount of screen time and, and names. But really, he is playing second fiddle a little mm. bit in both mm. films. Um, but The Insider is just a magnificent performance really mm. and you know it comes at the end of that period where he was doing a lot of shouty stuff mm. and he doesn't shout in the insider in fact he's the guy who's really put upon because he wants to do right by russell crowe's character but he's being blocked every turn because mm. of politics in the office and you know how big that tv show is yeah i mean he's like he's the fixer for christopher Plummer's character he's yeah. he's not even even in his workplace he's not the guy turning up saying i'm a producer i'm 60 minutes and i'm the star he's like no i the, there's another star who i've got to i love the bit at the very beginning where he's interviewing some sort of terrorist uh character and he starts arguing with with the people and and then Pacino goes up to him and says are you warmed up now are you ready to go <laughs> it's like yeah i'm ready to go and it's just that you know it, it could in another film it could so so easily be the other way around in terms of the roles it you could know well Pacino have been. could easily be playing the christopher Plummer character and that's i think it's more interesting point. because he isn't you know yeah that's a good point actually yeah yeah i like the fact that you know Pacino is like well i'm i'm going to take this character and i think i can mm. find something here without taking it to those proportions because you don't want the same type of person because christopher Plummer's playing that character so you don't want an outlandish producer even though probably that was the case i don't know but yeah to to be quite reserved in that film i think you know we, we said this earlier him being reserved in certain films and i think that shows it there as well i think it showed that by the by the end of the 90s he'd become this completely different actor and he'd found other ways of performing that weren't outlandish and actually were very different performances all over the place you know you you look at that and then the next film that comes out is any given sunday 
<laughs> right. And right. you're like, I mean, they're polar opposites. Aren't yeah, they? absolutely. Back with Oliver Stone as well from Back Scarface. Back with Oliver Stone. Yeah. yeah. You know, huge ensemble piece. Um, it's macho to the hilt. I mean, you watch it and you can just smell and taste the testosterone coming <laughs> off the screen. I don't want to taste it. But that's what it's like. You know, if, if Cameron Diaz wasn't in that film, it would be the ultimate macho male 90s sports movie. Let's be honest. I mean, it's so close to it anyway, but it is outlandish. It is garish and whatever else, but it's Oliver Stone. And that's what he does right sometimes. And he writes it well. You can't disagree with that. Yeah. And he's visually always, he's got a brilliant DP who, I mean, I think he's Tarantino's DP now. I, I, all his movies look amazing. JFK and Natural Born Killers. If anything, they sometimes look too amazing. So he goes into this really productive period. And I think you're right. He's definitely changed his style of acting. And there's a couple of good videos on YouTube of impersonators doing, going through his career and sort of going, oh, you've got the really quiet Pacino and then you've got the slightly loud and then the shoutier. But at this point, he's really playing sort of guru as well to a lot of younger actors. He's playing like uh, Keanu Reeves in Devil's Advocate, um, Colin Farrell in, what's it called? The Recruit. Recruit. Yeah. yeah. But those films, I, I mean, they're okay. I don't, I don't mind them, but they're not, I don't think there's much going on there that um that that needs a Pacino necessarily. They're they're straight to DVD fodder. Let's be honest. You know, yeah. two for the money is the same sort of thing. Um, right, right. You know, you, you're right. They're perfectly fine. They're they're not offending anybody. It's a decent cast, but you're not getting too much from the performance. It, it feels like you you know Pacino's just turning up and like yeah. Just let me go and I'll, I'll do whatever else, you know. Okay, I'm going to go for a few of the later ones and you're just going to tell me whether I, because I'll, I'll, I'll skip the ones I've seen because I just want to know which ones I should, for the completest, okay. I should watch. Okay, so 88 minutes, I haven't seen that. <laughs> 88 minutes, a film that is uh, meant to be real time, uh, but actually it's 102 minutes runtime. Yeah, <laughs> so it should have got 102 minutes. So uh, from that, I'm getting, no, don't bother with it. Awful film. Oh, Awful. right. Okay. Yeah, I've heard as much. Ocean 13. I've seen Righteous Kill. I've never seen. It's not great. No. Okay. It's, 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 I mean, you know, Pacino. It's a twofer as well. I would get, I yeah. would get to, to go for my De Niro completist as well. But... Yeah, but yeah. you really have to want to see it. You know, the, it's the dialogue. The dialogue is, is really shonky. Right. Okay. Okay. Oh, dear. Uh, you don't know Jack. The Jack Kevorkian miniseries, yeah, sort of TV TV movie, yeah, TV movie, yeah. Uh, very good, very good. Um, Pacino met Jack Kevorkian for for many months to greater understand who he was and why he was doing it as well. I really like it. It's kind of a shame it's a HBO movie, mm, you know. Right, sad thing. Should have should have had a, a wider release. I think so. Yeah, but then you know it wouldn't have played as big out of the US because a lot of people wouldn't know who Jack Kevorkian is. I didn't know until I'd seen the film. And I was right. like, oh, okay, he's that guy. Right, okay. Yeah, this... I think that's part of the problem is that he's done a few HBO movies that probably play really well in the US, but outside of that... Phil Spector was a HBO movie as well, wasn't it? It was, I yeah. I mean, thankfully, a lot of people know who Phil Spector is anyway. Sure, through, sure. Through whatever version, you know, whatever you know him from, whether it's the hit songs, whether, you know, it's the fact that he was a killer... Um, mm, mm. Or or just his hair, 
Um, <laughs> yeah, Mad Hair. Yeah, Mad Hair. You know, but I I like that film. I really yeah, like I, it. I think that's okay. I, that's not one of the ones I haven't seen. So, uh, The yeah. Son of No One. Unfortunately, to DVD. yeah, it's you know it's a film shot in in a New York neighborhood. It's all you know cops double crossing each other. Who's the mm. worst cop and whatever else? Pacino plays a mentor in it. It's a bit basic. It's it's not great. Not great. It's not great at all. No. Okay. And it's a good cast. That's the thing. You know, Ray Liotta's in it. Channing Tatum's yeah. in it as well. Ray Liotta being in anything though is at the moment, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, you know, it's uh he, he's not blessing. He, he's still he's still <laughs> trailing his coat to see if uh Scorsese <laughs> will pick it up. But uh I don't think he's I remember seeing him at Cannes during the press conference for uh killing them softly. And and he was so pleased to be there because he was like on he was there with Brad Pitt and everything. And they asked him a question and he came out with something really, I can't remember. I won't repeat it because it's too I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was let's say it was a politically incorrect remark. Right. And, and you're just thinking, man, you've got your shot here and you're you're gonna blow it, you know. You, you, it's, <laughs> and unfortunately that film wasn't as successful as it deserved to be. So it didn't really I mean he think he's brilliant in it. He's I super think it's a great actor. film. I really like that film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh stand up guys. I like it. It's good fun. Elder okay. statesman still trying to be hard guys, even though they're about 70 something. Um, you know. Right. Pacino, Christopher Walken, Alan Arkin. It's it's a good, fun movie. It lets itself down with the last five minutes. I'll be honest by that because it tries to do something that it shouldn't do. But there's a lot of fun to be had. Okay. A lot of fun. I liked it. Okay. We are not animals. I haven't seen it based on the fact that it's not freely available anywhere. Oh, this is a okay. movie that John Cusack made. 2013. Yeah, roped in quite a few people who he knew. You know, he knew Pacino from working with him uh, on City Hall. Uh, it's not freely available. It's not available actually anywhere in the world. There was, there is a thing on online that says it's available on US Netflix, but I am yet to find anybody to confirm that. So this film exists, but doesn't exist. Okay, John Kuzak, if you're listening, uh, drop me a line and we'll see if I can. <laughs> just, send it, just send it on a DVDR. It's fine. Yeah, yeah that's all I great. need. Just a link. It'll be fine. Yeah. Now, I've seen a bunch of these other films. Phil Spector, I saw. Uh, Salome, I saw. Actually, Salome, I went to the... Um, uh, I saw it when it showed at Venice. Oh, at nice. At the film festival. And I actually asked Mr. Pacino a question to <sighs> the... Uh, we did a, a... There was a press conference. And yeah. I just thought... Oh, just just for the for the uh what's the 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 bragging rights of saying i, I spoke to, to al pacino i said something to al pacino and he had to reply because of the context <laughs> uh that's that's the same as meeting someone surely that's i uh, think it is yeah I think exactly it is. there you go yeah what did you ask him i've got to know now you know i think it might have been something to do with it was it, it was a very bog standard question i when think are you it, making scarface 2 no no it wasn't it definitely wasn't that i think it was something to do with you know um his love of the theater and yeah. it might have been something to do with wild as opposed to shakespeare or something but the funny thing was is he uh it was like only the second question of the press conference and he spent the rest of the press conference answering that question <laughs> He just he just spent the, basically someone asked one question. Oh, what was it like working with Jessica Chastain? He went, oh, yeah, it was great. And then I asked my question and he just went and then that was the rest. Of, right. That's all we have time for. <laughs> there we go. There we go. In which case, your question was bang on. Really? Yeah, Let's yeah. be honest. So when you saw it, did you see 
just salome or wild salome as well oh wild salome they showed them both oh uh, right okay Okay. they showed the film and the and the and the documentary documentary yeah i think we should point this out to anybody who's listening is that salome and wild salome are two separate entities oh wait a minute i wonder if they just showed wild salome they definitely it was definitely the documentary i definitely saw that i don't think i saw because so they released sort of what they were filming as a a separate film i'm guessing yeah it came as a double pack so basically you had salome which was just the filmed version of the stage play but with uh, you know nobody there no audience and then you had wild salome which is the documentary about behind the scenes of trying to put on the the stage show also making it into the film and all of the problems that he had wild salome if you're kind of thinking oh have i got to watch both you don't have to watch both at all just watch the documentary wild salome i think that's a much better one you get clips of the actual show yeah you You get get quite extensive clips as well you do yeah um but you also get a lot of background knowledge as to how difficult it was for Pacino to put together. I mean, it took him four years yeah, yeah. To, to edit it. because and, and I think it was four years and six editors because he couldn't, he couldn't get out of his mind what he wanted to put on the screen, basically. Mm, mm. He was going, no, no, I've got this in my head, but why is it not showing me on the screen? So he would get rid of an editor and then somebody else would come in and then he'd bring back editor number one because he knew what he was doing. But four years he spent with this and it, it kind of drove him mad. I mean, as the other thing is Jessica Chastain absolutely uh, shines. I mean, she, there's a, there, there are scenes in there where you, because I remember seeing her in that and it was only, wasn't that long since she'd done Tree of Life. And so she'd really sort of stepped onto the scene as this sort of new actress. Well, Salome, well, Wild Salome, was her first ever performance. That's right, that's right. her entry into the film world. But because wow. it took Pacino four years to get the film out, everybody was like, oh, well, we know who Jessica Chastain is because, you know, Tree of Life, Zero Dark Thirty as well. Everybody knew who she was by this point. So Pacino's like, well, listen, I found her. And they're like, I don't think you did. Like, no, 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 I did. It's just taken me ages to get the film out. <laughs> Hurry up, Al. Hurry yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Come on, granddad. But get I've got, so you went to the Venice one. I went to the UK premiere. And there's a photo in my book that I took on the red carpet of Jessica Chastain, Al Pacino and the two producers as well. So I took that. So I was like, I'm going to include that in there. Um, But on but at the UK one, they only showed Wild Salome. But to the press, they showed both versions. It's a it's a confusing thing. And bizarrely, it was really difficult to get hold of as well, like DVD wise. Now it's freely available everywhere. But yeah, I mean, I had to I had to send copies to people in the US who were in the film because it had not been released in the US. What about Danny Collins? I've not seen that. And that's um, I that's love, one of the bigger ones. Isn't I it? love Danny Collins. It's mm. so much fun. It's really heartwarming. It's the type of it's the type of Pacino performance that you kind of expect, but you you kind of don't. You know, he's he's playing this one hit wonder singer who has kind of he's kind of really got rid of his family. He's not spoken to them in years and Mm. his son is having a really nice relationship and he's got a son. Then all of a sudden something happens and he thinks I really must reconnect with my son. And he sounds like, why are you coming back now? We're not interested. And he tries to buy them all the goods because he's got all this money and he's on the straight and narrow and whatever. It's just a really fun performance. And the, the wonderful on off relationship between Pacino and Annette Benning in it is is worth the price alone to okay. be honest with you 
Um, you know, they, and that Benin's retorts to him sometimes are amazing. Like there's a moment in it where he's got this garish suit on, but the kind of suit that you would imagine a singer of his caliber to be wearing. Yeah. And he goes, he, he opens up the jacket and he goes, what do you think? And she went, no, not that much. He went, nah, I look smart. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's just something like that. It's kind of fun. It's, it's, I like it just because it is a bit of, it's a bit of fluff, but it's fun fluff. And a little bit teary as well towards the end. Oh, okay. I know. Okay, I know. you've won me over. I'll, 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 give that, I'll give that a shot, definitely. And then we, we're sort of at the end, really. So uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman are sort of the two big roles that he does toward the, towards mm. the end. Once upon a time in in Hollywood, I guess is the is the more uh, just a, a a bit part kind of again. You get I get the feeling Tarantino's a bit of a completist as well, and he wants he's, <laughs> he's had the Nero now. He, he he's probably <laughs> hunting up Dustin Hoffman for his next thing. But with the with the Irishman, you again that's the sort of that actually he sort of does the opposite to what he does in Heat. That actually he's the the main guy, and and De Niro is a little bit the foil. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's because a lot of people know Jimmy Hoffa or are right. aware of Jimmy Hoffa, whereas obviously nobody re- really knows De Niro's character unless you read the book. That's the yeah, thing. which is which is I hear you paint houses. Yeah, I heard you paint houses, which, which is, is a, also the the title Scorsese actually uses in the film. in the film. So yeah, like it like... flashes up, and you're like, hang on, what? What's going on here? Obviously, Netflix had a hand in that and said, we can't have a film called that. It's too long a title. Can we change yeah. it? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good performance in, from Pacino in that, um, you know, to take a character like that who was both loved and hated for his union work. Once again, you know, we, we spoke about this earlier, create a character who you kind of like, you know, you kind of appreciate really. But what you see him do is not that great. You know, he's hiring a killer here um, on the side to help him. Uh, it's a phenomenal performance. Obviously, motion capture takes yeah. a, quite a bit. You know, oh, here's the younger one and whatever else. But the weird thing is, when I went to see it, I was like, OK, that's kind of weird initially. But then you get used to it. And I think that's the beauty of it is that... Um, I wonder if it'll survive a rewatch because I did start rewatching it um, after I saw it at the cinema and I just, mm. you know, there's a certain point, as you say, I think you get your eye in and your brain is just saying, yeah, okay, I'm ignoring the weirdness. I'm just watching it now. But then I sat down to rewatch it. I was like, bloody hell, that's really jumping out. I mean, it's very Polar <laughs> Express, you know, it's very, uh, yeah. Uh, it, you know, that's a good question because I saw it at the UK premiere and then when it hit netflix i watched it again because the other half hadn't seen it and then obviously it got released on blu-ray so i watched it again it never really stood out for me i've got to be honest but maybe it's just because i have seen so many young pacino films that i'm just like well this is this is him in bobby deerfield or something like that you know this is they've scanned him from sea of love or something like that sure it it never really stood out for me that much but that's because obviously having watched every single film it it doesn't stand out that much but maybe for somebody who has only dipped into you know godfather scarface and a few others you're kind of like oh it's a big change Mm, you know i think the film is excellent anyway um, mm. I like the fact that Pacino finally got to work with Scorsese after mm. all of these decades. They've been yeah. trying to do it. And he got to work with his friend De Niro and his friend Pesci as well. You know, he got to go toe to toe with Stephen Graham and Stephen Graham beat the shit out of him as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's, it's there's a wonderful Pacino gave a, 
a little interview and he said, there's a scene in the film, you'll know this, where he meets Stephen Graham's character and Stephen Graham's got those shorts on and mm. he's late and that they go into this thing of being late and whatever else. And they do the scene and Scorsese calls cut and Pacino turns to Scorsese and he goes, Marty, did you see that? The kid's got balls. And you're like, yeah, you know, because I imagine there's a lot of actors out there yeah. who would not dare go toe to toe with Pacino. But Stephen Graham does. Yeah. And it kind yeah. of comes out on top as well. That's the thing. Like, it's it's a really great sequence. And he takes on Shouty Pacino and, and does his own thing. And you're yeah. kind of scared as well. And I, I like the fact that there are actors out there who will still go toe to toe. Um, regardless of the stature of who they're going up against as well. Mm. You know, there's not many who would do that. You know, it'd be like going up against De Niro or or Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously, when he was acting or something like that. Yeah, I like the fact that there's there's still people out there who will give it a go instead of going, oh, it's Pacino. I've got to let him win every scene. It's like, no, no, that's, you know, he's not here. And I, that comes across in the book, actually, quite a lot, is that people tell me he's a very genuine actor. Yeah, yeah. You know, he likes people to explore the scene. He will happily take a back seat. And this is what you were saying earlier, is that, you know, some films, he feels like he's the second fiddle. But he's fine with that. And I think that's the wonderful thing about somebody like him, who is this, let's be honest, he's an A-lister still. Anytime a Pacino film comes out, most people will be aware of it, at least. Whether they see it, I don't know. But you have this sort of attitude of the fact that he's, he's still happy to be on set, even at 80 years old. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I, I felt it a little bit when Connery died recently. There was there's a whole generation of of actors who it's a little bit like in the eighties. Everybody waiting for that good Bob Dylan album. You know, <laughs> there comes a point where you just think, uh, I think I think we just got to be happy with what we got instead of hoping. <laughs> you know, hoping well, for something. That's and I sort a good of point. Feel, feel the same thing with De Niro and Pacino and stuff. It's like. God, these guys did their jobs everything they've done you know anything you get post 1990 from either of these guys or Dustin Hoffman or whatever it's gravy it's all good and they did a lot that was great afterwards but and you know to, to sort of expect to expect even more is I mean I think the Irishman had exactly that feel of a, a real miracle film a real song mm. like, I didn't think we were going to see the, these actors together again under yeah. the under this director yeah so I uh, agree so what's your what's your next project then Mark what are you working on next? Is, is Stephen Graham? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be great. You know, I mean, Stephen Graham's such an interesting actor. Anyway, um, nothing much, to be honest with you. You know, uh, I'm still doing film reviews every week, so that kind of takes up my time. Where's your work? Bit. Where where do we can we see your work? So, so I'm on a couple of local BBC radio stations here in the UK, so BBC Suffolk and BBC Northampton. Right. I also do uh, Phoenix FM, which is a community station. Um, so we do two to four films a week that are you know cinemas streaming dvd whatever is out and about this week um and then so i'm still obviously promoting the pacino book even though it came out oh my goodness four years ago and then last year i had a book out all about the late great comedian rick mail oh yeah i saw that yeah. i saw you had a book out about him yeah yeah so gone too know, soon yeah unfortunately so so you know it's these things I, i'm just i'm still waiting to meet pacino Mm, I've met him. <laughs> right, that's the end of this now. Thank you. But do you know what? It's funny as well because the book came out, and as I said to you, I self-published. I didn't really think anything would happen, and then I sent the book to his right-hand man, who 
I had managed to sort of get in contact with. And then he right. realized, hey, this guy's not a stalker. He's actually put X amount of thousands into making this book. Mm. Okay, right, fine. So then we sort of became friendly and whatever else. And then in 2018, I was in LA and I was meant to go to his house to interview him. Tarantino moved up the shooting schedule for Pacino's scenes. So uh, it didn't happen. Damn. Yeah. And then they were always like, well, look, next time you're here, we'll do it. And then obviously the world went on its axis um, for the past 18 months. So nobody could go anywhere. But it's kind of interesting. The book keeps coming back around. Only mm. recently did I discover that the book is on Pacino's shelf in his library. Oh, wow. That's good to know. Yeah. Like I didn't know. It was only when um, a tennis player, I, I've forgotten her name now. She was there. And she had taken a little video in Pacino's library and like there was DVDs stacked everywhere. Mm, um, mm. Alvin and the Chipmunks is one of those DVDs. I'll let you know. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, but at the top, next to a photo of his kids was my book on display. And nice. I had no idea. Obviously, he's put that in the corner of love. <laughs> <laughs> Things I love. My kids. Mark's book. I'll take Alvin it. And the chip. All I think is, now, I'm like, you know, it just blew me away that, you know, I had written this book thinking the only person who's ever going to read this is, is my mom, really. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's, it's on this shelf. And I'm like, you know, it's not even a side view either. It's like full on display. And yeah, I'm like, this yeah. is crazy, you know. And and I have to thank Leonard and Jesse Melton for that. Right, um, right. Because they had interviewed Al a few years ago for their podcast and I had sent leonard a copy of the book and he had given it to al because they've been friends for quite a few years so i I, right. I do have to thank them for that um but you know i kind of thought maybe al left and just put it in the bin on sunset boulevard <laughs> or something and then two years oh, later oh ye of little faith well you never know do you that's the thing you just got you know celebrities get given so much tat that you kind of think oh thank you they put it in the bin but yeah to find it there was just beyond Clint, my wildest dreams, really. Um, Clint Eastwood doesn't. There's a story about Clint Eastwood that when they go to like um, Oscar parties and and where there's loads of swag, he actually has a group of his entourage go around and collect it, and he's just a complete <laughs> hoarder. It just complete keeps everything. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah, that. That sounds yeah. like me, to be honest. I am a collector of movie memorabilia, especially Pacino stuff as yeah. well. Um, you know. well. Moving on from that, the final question for you is, uh, what film book would you recommend for our listeners? I know this is a little bit cliched, sure. but I am going to say it because it was an inspiration for my book, and also I am very pleased to say that he has become a friend i will recommend al pacino's authorized biography by lawrence grobel it's it's set in stages throughout pacino's career so there are interviews in the 70s in the 80s and in the 90s right and i think it gives you a wide variety of what pacino was going through at that time and they don't just talk about films either they talk about their lives and what's happening um and Lawrence had been friends with Al for, for decades. Like he was the only guy who would do an interview, who Pacino would allow to do the interview. And that's because Al saw Lawrence's interview with Brando and right. said, if this is the guy who's interviewed Brando, this is the guy I want to interview me. And that's how they stayed friends. So look, buy my book first. Okay. <laughs> And then get Larry's book. Larry's um, book is like a companion piece, really, to your book. Thank it you. Does, thank it doesn't, you. It doesn't really make much sense if you haven't read your book. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes, thank you. Yes. Um, 
Yeah, sorry. I know it's a little bit cliched, but I have to say that it is a hugely important book in terms of the, you know, finding Pacino, finding who Pacino is. I think that's the thing. Not not the actor, but who Pacino is. Well, I do. I do agree that both those books, both your book and and they do actually go well together um, in the sense that uh, Grobel's book, if it has a weakness, is that it isn't it doesn't feel complete. It doesn't feel as engaged with the movies. And and of course you don't. And you're interviewing everyone except Pacino. Mm-hmm. So so and Grobel's book is entirely Pacino. So you yeah. do get those different perspectives. I think they do go go quite well together. Joking aside. Well, thank you. That's that's very kind of you to say. I mean, my book next to Larry's would be a dream, to be honest with you. Right. Yes, it's fantastic. But, um, you know, Larry, Larry's absolutely fantastic. He's interviewed everybody anyway. Right. Um, and it is a it is a really good book. Um, it's it's shorter than mine as well. You know, mine is 640 mm. something pages. Larry's is about 300. So if you start mine now, then you'll probably get to Larry's in about 2023 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yours also has that structure where you can sort of dip in and use it as a, as a sort of like an encyclopedia book, you know, where you're just like, oh, okay. So for instance, I would skip chapters if, of stuff that I haven't necessarily seen because I want to watch them first and then I want to read the chapter about it. Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. I had never really thought about that, but then a lot of people told me that. Mm. And I, I, you know, that wasn't in my mind when I was writing it, but it, it's kind of you to say that. And I, I do think that, yeah, mate, that's probably the right way to do it. You know, mm. it's, it's the way that you see certain books made about TV shows where they recap the episode and you watch the episode, then you read about what they've written. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to for people to watch Pacino's entire catalogue and then read about it in my book after. Well, I'm going to watch Danny Collins now and then I'm going to read read the chapter that I skipped. So. Fantastic. Fantas- <laughs> Danny Collins. Oh, you're going to love it. You really are. Brilliant. Looking forward to it. Listen, Mark, thanks so much for your time. And and yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for talking to me. No, thank you. Thank you for doing this podcast. I find it absolutely fascinating listening to them all. So there you go. That was Al Pacino, The Movies Behind the Man. And I hope you've enjoyed that very much. The recommended book by uh, the book, sorry, that Mark recommended was Lawrence Grobel's biography from 2003, I think, of Al Pacino. And the two books really complement each other, as I've already stated in the conversation. So you don't need any more. Uh, pressure or advice before you go off and order those books what i really ought to do is just thank elliot atkins for the music he's also working on a new version of the uh, of the theme that goes at the beginning and the end of each episode uh, so you'll be you'll be able to look out for that hopefully in the near near future great thanks for listening thanks and enjoy and enjoy the rest of your your week i guess What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.